right, we are live. Welcome back to First Impressions. It's the girls again. Hello, um, we're back. <laughs> it's Kristen and Maggie. We're back to give those double middle fingers to all those haters. Now, Kristen, aren't we supposed to give the haters, what is it that Kevin said? Give them a, a nice hug instead. <laughs> the raspberries. Or, or comfort them that they hadn't gotten enough love in their childhoods. <laughs> what do we say to that? They say, middle fingers to all the haters. We're, we're, bad. we're badder than ever. We're the baddest bitches. Baddest bitches in town. Yeah. <laughs> baddest Austin podcasting bitches in town. It's still it's narrow field, but we're still the baddest. Yeah, it is a narrow field. Yeah, I was I was looking in iTunes the other day at, at our podcast. To, it basically, you should just know that I read the reviews for my own vanity sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> But it was iTunes started suggesting some other podcasts, and there were a couple of other one-offs where people had talked about Jane Austen on mm-hmm. their like reading book series. But there's no other like all Jane Austen all the time. So, Kristen, is what you're saying that we are the number one rated podcast of dedicated <laughs> to Jane Austen on the North American iTunes charts? We, matter of fact, we're number one. That's still <laughs> drink to that. <laughs> number one. I will drink to that because the drink is back, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> happening. I am drinking some super classy Merlot that I got out of a tiny little plastic bottle. Uh, so. I am drinking. I'm drinking a cocktail called Wildfire that I made a huge picture of for my Game of Thrones season six rewatch party last night. And someone brought, let me just put it this way. There were a lot of libations. So there's still a lot of wildfire left. (laughs) Well, I guess this is going to be a very spirited discussion then. Oh God, you should be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) I am all the time, but now (laughs) no. Okay. So without further ado, today we are talking about the Jane Austen book club, the movie and You know, uh, uh, the reason we're doing a separate podcast on the movie is because there was a little bit of a miscommunication in that for the Jane Austen book club, the book, I thought we were doing both the book and the movie. So I watched both, uh, but Maggie hadn't watched the movie. And so I'd watched it when it first came out. Yeah, which was apparently in 2007, 10 years ago. Oh my God. Longer. Um, (laughs) It does feel long. So I did not really remember that much about it. So we had to do it. Now we'll do a full movie extravaganza. Jane Austen Book Club podcast. I'm kind of glad because I have a lot to say about this movie. I scribbled so many notes when I was watching it. And the more I watched it, the more I enjoyed it to the point where I have a lot of a lot of things to say about it. Um, Maggie, I know we were going to start with doing kind of a general thumbs up, thumbs down. And Maggie, you have some strong feelings as well. I do, but I would say thumbs up overall. Definitely. Good. I would recommend, I don't know, I don't know if I would recommend this movie to everyone. But there are definitely people, I think overall, I would say, I this I enjoyed watching this movie. This was a good movie. Oh, good. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And um, I remember kind of being irritated with it when it first came out, but I, but it did stay with me. Like a lot of scenes were very vivid in my memory. Yeah. And when I went back and watched it again, I was more charitable towards it. And then this, we both just watched it one more time this morning. And I have to say that... Um, even though some of the Austin criticism wasn't as satisfying as I would like it to be, I think mm-hmm. overall they did a great job using Austin to tell stories about these characters' relationships because when they do mm-hmm. discuss the books, their perspectives are all colored by where they're coming from in their their lives. And I thought that was clever the way that had been done. I felt I felt I also felt that the Austin parallels were not as clear in the movie mm-hmm. as they were in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it because of the form of storytelling, what it sometimes required was other characters to specifically point out during the discussion the parallels. 
Uh, yes. Sometimes like someone's like, oh, you're, you're such a fanny. Yeah, or, you're such an Emma. Yeah, yeah it was oh, sometimes this, got this a little off the nose. Like in blah, blah. Um, but whereas the reader, you have more time to have the reader come to those realizations themselves. You know, in a film, you only have like, what, 90 minutes, two hours. So Yes, yeah. So you have to bring it a little bit to the forefront. I figured that we would start, you know, start the discussion just by talking about all the characters and the way that they have them meet and our general impressions of the characters and, and how they were introduced. So is there anything else overall that you wanted to say about the movie? Overall, like I said, I really liked it. I did prefer the book. Um, I think it had a little more depth of character and interesting things to say. As much as I had mentioned in our previous discussion that there were some things about the, um, you know, the flashbacks, the extended flashbacks, I was like, Ugh. I actually missed those while oh, watching really? the film. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they did, some of the characters did say them to other characters, you know, when I was a kid, blah, blah. But I actually found that I kind of missed knowing more about these characters. But overall, I did really enjoy, I did really enjoy watching it. I watched it all in one go, which is very unusual for me. Bay gets, uh, that's Bayard. Not just B A E Bay, but B A Y Bay for those who keep emailing us. That oh, I thought it was Bay, like B A E. His name is Bay. Um, he is always getting mad at me because I'm a fractured movie watcher. Where I will start and stop and pick up again. He's he calls me a monster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> history's greatest monster. Um, but I did. I just sat down and watched this whole movie. I was really into it. Well, that's good. And these this you remember this art was made to be watched all in one piece. So. Sit down, put your knitting aside, and sit <laughs> down. It is a reference to Bernadette constantly knitting throughout the movie. But let me talk, okay, the only bad thing about this movie for me, the only thing that really drives me nuts, well, aside from uh, Prudy and Dean, which is an annoyance in the book too, is the incredibly annoying title sequence. So when the credits start. Oh, yeah. So what was that about? Is that, oh, I'll let you do your thing. But I, I mean, I think I understood what they were getting at, but I'm not entirely sure. Oh, they, I think I understood what they were getting at, too. And it's so dumb. It's like modern life. Whoa, it's so complicated. Yeah. It so, was, yeah, exactly. It was like the little, <laughs> like the annoyances of technology. Like, oh, the vending machine doesn't read my dollar. Or the gas machine won't pump my gas because it can't read my card correctly. Or I can't reach the parking ticket. Like, yes. oh, And the worst really. thing about it, the worst, worst thing about it is the stupid song they picked and it went on forever and the stupid song they picked is that hey i put some new shoes on and suddenly everything's fine <laughs> and it's this like new shoes song where it's this the chorus is like he's singing about new shoes over and over hey, I put some new shoes on and Actually, the first time I watched this got so irritated that I fast forwarded through it and stopped it and it was already in the middle of like the second scene or something. This was the first time that you watched this movie? Uh, wait, you're saying the first time you rewatched it or the first time you ever watched it? Rewatched it. I was going to say, that was I probably the VHS. I saw it on the movie. I saw it in the movie theater the first Did time. Did we see it together? Mm, well, I don't know. I was back from school. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think I definitely went with my mom. <laughs> this is definitely a movie to go to yes. with your mom. But I actually um, I would time just, oh. to get to get to get me through. So the sanity to, to keep my sanity. The second time I watched a stupid credits title, I wrote down all of the crazy technology things that happened. <laughs> well, so yes. Yeah, so let me just bore you to tears. So a, a 
put my new shoes on. Oh no, my treadmill's going too fast. Put some new shoes on and suddenly, oh, someone took my parking spot. I put some new shoes on and suddenly everything's fun. Oh, the printer's jammed. Oh no, I dropped my phone in the toilet. Oh no, it was I can't almost, reach the t- <laughs> It was like a dumber version of the great montage at nine to five when Lily Tomlin can't figure out how any of the things in the office work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so actually, this is that interesting leads me to another point where when I first started watching it, based on the music and the way it was shot, I assumed it must date from like 1999 or 2000. Yeah, it, it felt much older. When I looked it up and realized it was released in 2007 because just the way it was directed, the way it looked and the, the soundtrack they were using it just really, to me, felt like it was from like late 90s, early aughts. And so I was really surprised to realize that it had originally come out in 2000. I mean, and I know I, I, I knew that because of the age of the actors in it. Like Emily Blunt is not that old, right? She couldn't have been playing Prudy um, in 1999. But uh, it, it just felt like, it's like when you watch really old episodes of Friends, yeah. you know? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I felt that way too. I mean, it was just something about it felt corny and dated. But yeah. Oh, and then like at the very end when it's like everyone looking over cheering with their champagne, like, ah, free spray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just, parts of it just felt very, parts of it felt very dated. And then, you know, That's they, a good way to describe it. should have just jumped in the air and then it would have freeze framed on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Jane Austen. Like freeze frame on, on Harry Potter <laughs> on his, on his broom in the third movie. <laughs> But overall, the look of it did feel really much older to me. I was surprised. You know, but, and part of that was the soundtrack. Like you're pointing out, the soundtrack choices just felt like so expected, I guess. A lot of this movie felt like it was kind of a paint-by-numbers expected. They, they did do some kind of stuff like that. But, you know, I, that all fell away from for me in watching the, the story and the characters interact. So it didn't I agree. Really I absolutely agree. For me. No, it didn't ruin anything for me, too. I agree. I'm not sure I understand that. So the movie begins with a quote on the screen and then it fades away. And the quote is from Pride and Prejudice. It is, is not general incivility the very essence of love? And I am not sure I understand how that applies to the story in general, but okay. Maybe they're, what, talking, hmm, maybe they're talking quote. about how a lot of the tension in this story comes from characters being truthful with each other. And generally, we would consider being like blunt truth to be somewhat incivil. There is a lot of truth telling in this movie. Um, They probably just needed to find a Jane Austen quote about love. So that's the one they picked. I don't know why they didn't just pick the one from the end of the book. Yeah. So, but the movie starts and Jocelyn has just lost her dog and she's had a whole funeral for it. And, and that is different, right? That's a different start. It is a different start. Um, they, they're mourning the death of a dog, which in the book has died way earlier in the book. But, but that's okay. That's, it's just a little choice that they made. But it's, it's used as sort of a platform for Jimmy Smith, who plays Daniel, the husband of Sylvia and the father of uh, his daughter, Allegra, right? So there's this family. There's Daniel, Sylvia. They're married, and they have the daughter, Allegra. And Daniel and his daughter Allegra are talking about Jocelyn and and how she's been single all her life. And Daniel's like, well, you need companionship. You need sex and you need love and blah, blah, blah. And he sort of has a moment. And then the scene shifts to him and his wife, Sylvia, and they're having dinner. And okay, Daniel's played by Jimmy Smits. And I always thought of Jimmy Smits as a good actor. 
But he blew me away in this scene where he takes his wife to a fancy restaurant and they're sitting there and they're talking and he brings up this conversation about love and companionship and sex. And then he says, you know, it just made me so sad. And Sylvia, the, his wife, is sort of squinting at him. And he just comes right out with it that he wants this divorce and that he's seeing another woman. And he's talking about, you know, I think that we I should- I don't want to lie to you anymore. I don't want to lie. I don't think we should quit while we're ahead. And it's almost like the spur of the moment decision that he's made. And it's all a torrent. It's coming out. And that scene was a gut punch for me. I mean, Jimmy Smith yeah. was a fantastic actor in that scene. It felt very um, organic and like two real people when she's like, well, you know, who, how can you even imagine what you'd feel like or how you'd act when you get the news that your husband wants to leave you? But um, it seemed very real. And then then they have to like walk to the car and she's sobbing and and they got to, oh my God, they got to like drive home together. And he's like trying to explain himself. Oh, I'm passionate. And she's like, open the door. I need a tissue, right? Like she's, she's being more practical. And she's like, who is this woman, you know, and wants to hear about the details. And that did a lot to open up the two characters in their relationship into, but he keeps talking about wanting to quit while we're ahead, which is just a weird sentiment. So you can tell this totally came out of left field. I was really impressed by Amy Brenneman's performance in that scene too, because every time he starts talking about it, she assumes he's talking about something else. Like they're just having a normal conversation, like about their daughter or about something else. And so she doesn't realize this is a super important conversation until they're already halfway into it. And then it's like, she got hit by a truck. You know, she did not, I, I, I don't know. I have many, one of the main problems I had with this movie was when I realized that Amy Brenneman and Maggie Grace were playing Sylvia and Allegra, who are not, in my head, white people. Right, they they're not. like, speak Spanish. And Sylvia wants to make flan when she's upset. Yeah. And when I, when, I don't, I mean, I'm not, maybe I was being slow. Like, obviously, in my head, when I'm reading the book, I did not picture those two characters as white women. Um, and then when I realized what I was seeing, it was when Amy Brenneman's upset and she calls character Miha. She says, Miha, go get a dozen eggs. I want to make a flan. And I was like, what? <laughs> Amy Brenneman, I'm sorry. She does not look like the type of lady where when she gets upset, she's going to go make a flan. Like, they are, those are white women. Well, and it made I mean, me really upset because that's, you know, there's all these conversations now about whitewashing yeah. in film. And it's like we have just woken up to this as a thing that's happened for since the beginning of film. And this was just like a bam example right in front of my face that I never would have noticed maybe five years ago. Yeah. And it, it made me really upset, actually. I mean, they've got yeah. Jimmy Smith up in there, I guess, to lend some credibility. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, points. It was Jimmy pretty shocking. Smith, but yeah. Pretty yeah. And if it had been today, we would definitely be having that conversation, too. But um, I don't know. I, I did... I didn't fall trip over it because I thought that Amy Brenneman looked like this is terrible, but because I knew she was supposed to be Latina, I, my brain just filtered her that way, you know, like, well, like, she's also a great actress. I mean, yeah. Maggie Grace, like, I, I don't think that she's in the caliber of some of the other members of this cast, but she's good. Like, she's not terrible. She's good. So whatever, but it was still very shocking when I just kind of had that light click moment, like, holy shit, they cast like these two super white women 
Mm. <laughs> and they're like talking in Spanish and it looks ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, that was, that was that. And she's like, oh, I'm going to make a flan. Yeah. And the, that's, that's sort of like her Eleanor moment where she's like, okay, we're going to do something constructive, but really Sylvia, um, that, you know, the character who, whose husband just left in the book, we're really supposed to see her as Eleanor. We're supposed to see her yeah. and her daughter Allegra as Eleanor and Marianne. In this movie, they've taken her and they've made her Fanny Price. And they've done yeah. something t- entirely different with it, which I, I think works better. Um, and part of that is that in, she's the driver in many of the um, early book club scenes. She has an emotional meltdown. <laughs> and yeah. so they really couldn't do that if, if she was trying to play, play the Eleanor character. So that was better. Um, and Prudy, Prudy, who is, you know, we're supposed to think of her as a Fanny Price or whatever because she's not that <laughs> likable. Um, they make her more into, they kind of force her into the persuasion story as well. And mm-hmm. what, so when Prudy and Dean um, get together and like meet for the first time in this movie, it becomes very obvious that they have gone to, they, they went way over the top in making Dean the bad guy. So Do you're you, referring to Prudy's husband, right? He's yeah, Dean. yeah. Prudy and Dean. Uh, that was couple. actually, so my, when the, my number one main objection actually to the film versus the book is I thought the male characters really got a disservice, especially with Dean. In the book, he's such a great guy. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why you don't really, it, Prudy, like, you don't really understand why she can't get it together because she actually has this amazing husband. And Dean in the book, look, it's Mark Lucas who played Riley on Buffy. And you know what? He's great. But when you've been Riley, like, you can't really ever come back from that. So he, I'm prone to not like him anyway. <laughs> and then when you make him, like, a sports-obsessed, blowing off a trip to Paris to go somewhere with his boss on a sports trip, like, I'm not. No. I, yeah. I didn't like that. Just but, keep, there was no reason to turn him into a villain as far as I could see. There's no reason for that. And here's the other thing. It made their marriage so unrealistic because she's yeah. this nerdy, French, cultured, obsessed kind of person. That you, So there's this SNL sketch, right? The Needlers, the couple who should be divorced. <laughs> they're the Needlers. They are the couple, Prudy and Dean, uh, husband and wife, who you cannot figure out how they ever got married in the first place. And that's what made their storyline very unrealistic. And when they, they, they sort of reconcile in the end, you're like, I don't buy it because, yeah. and, and so Kevin made the point too, cause Kevin did watch this with me. He is like, Oh, Prudy and Dean, uh, they've, they've introduced Austin to her mortal enemy sports. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then the way they like make up and come back together is by reading persuasion together. And you know, it's sweet, but and I, I like that he is somewhat redeemed, I guess. No, but it's just, thing, he's though, just not, he's they, just. They made him so stupid and caricature. Yeah, they made him a caricature. They made him such a meathead that when in the end they do start reading persuasion to each other, you're like, Dean can read? Like when yeah. he's, he's reading a full sentence, he's like reading, like they, that's how much of a meathead they made him. So it, that's why it doesn't work at all with them and the, 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 the scene too where they sort of have this big fight in the beginning is that he was going to take her to Paris as, as you know as you just said she meets him up with him in a sports bar he's watching a basketball game so he can't even be bothered to pay attention I thought, well I thought ball. he did a really good job with his Mark Lucas in this film did well with what they gave him like when his eyes were just constantly flitting back to the television to the, yeah yeah instead of looking at her he, I thought that did. I think that was like real, there were there were some really nice acting touches in here, but you just hate the character, right? He, he's yeah. just your typical egotistic douchebag. 
Well, here's the other unrealistic thing. I am married to a huge NBA fan. And what Dean comes out with in this conversation is, oh, I forgot to tell you we're not going to Paris anymore. Instead, my boss takes wants me to take our clients to the NBA playoffs game. I'm Everybody sorry. Knows I'm NBA sorry. playoff games do not take place at that time of year. No, well, no, I don't think that that's that's not that's not my point. My point is that if you're a basketball fan and you get told that you're going to a playoffs game, this is not something you forget to tell your wife. This is something that you call everybody you know and say, yeah. you guys want to go? <laughs> so I, I got the impression that his job was sports related. So because he said he's going with his boss, mm. was that incorrect? No, they're taking a client. Yeah, I got the, like, I got the, take, uh, to take our clients to this game. So I was under the impression that he was like a sports agent or something like that. But I guess he's not. He's just some kind of other person that has clients. Yeah. And yeah. And they, you know, it's a manly we're going to sports kind of thing. <laughs> um, so this is the, the, the Dean's insensitivity. Um, you know, Prudy, Emily Blunt's character, Prudy storms out. And then the bartender, Dean's like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong to the bartender. The bartender just like, okay, man. Like the bartender gives him like some serious side eye. He was like, I honestly have no idea what I did. Yeah, I have no really? idea. Really? It was so because wrong. Because canceling a trip to Paris and not telling your partner about it seems pretty obvious. Like you done fucked up. But that, and this is what leads to one of the most memorable parts of the movie to me, which I really loved. And I, I remember this from the first time I saw it. It always stuck in my memory is that Prudy, in her emotional state, goes to a movie theater where they're having an Austin film festival and she stands in line to get a ticket for the Patricia Rosma Mansfield Park, which came out in mm-hmm. 1998, uh, which is a horrible film. And she's standing in line. And um, Bernadette, the character of Bernadette, this is how they meet. They sort of meet in line because Bernadette's right in, behind her talking to this other woman. And this other woman, this random woman, is like, oh, I'm a film teacher and I love teaching this movie to my students. Mm-hmm. And Bernadette asks, turns to Prudy and says, do you like this movie? And of course, she's sobbing. And she's like, no. <laughs> she's like, do you know they made the main character and the author the same person? And they made Thomas, Ber- you know, Sir Bertram, yeah. uh, Sir Thomas, rather, a slave owner. And this is ridiculous. And, um, and then the woman, the first film critic, doesn't know how to respond to this. And she goes, well, I thought the screenplay was excellent. <laughs> Which I everything that we talked about when we talked about the movie. <laughs> it's like, who could possibly like this movie? Who could possibly like it? And then and because guess, Bernadette is a force of nature, she just like pulls Prudy into her orbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then they go out and have Sundays and whatever. She's like, we're going to go do the book club. And then the final set of characters. Oh, and then she's all, and Bernadette's like, I get pee and pee, right? Yeah, <laughs> which is cute. But then the final set of characters that sort of meet is or when is when uh, Jocelyn meets Grig at the science fiction convention, mm-hmm. which um, was so cute, but also a little bit too much slapsticks for me. But the guy that they cast to play Grig, his name is um, Hugh Dancy. Hugh Dancy, which is almost Mr. Darcy, and he plays yeah. a Mr. Darcy-esque character. I thought again that they kind of dumbed him down too. He, they dumbed him. They made him a little geekier and a little less social, more like, socially. I spilled my coffee. <laughs> well, like he doesn't just take out the complete works of Jane Austen book. He like takes it out and throws it on the like drops it on the table. <laughs> Aren't they all sequels? Yes, yeah, so um, he comes into the book club, uh, the first meeting to discuss it, and he's all sweaty and also he's in a full body because he's he has bicycles there. 
and he's in one of those full body uh, spandex things. And you could just tell he's like sweaty and gross. And everybody's like, who the, who the F is this guy? This guy like, is and this so is, weird. This is something else that dated the movie for me. He walks in and he goes, oh, I waited 30 minutes at the other Starbucks. Golly, there's a lot of them these days, isn't there? And it's just like, oh my God. Yeah. That's like a level of commentary I expect from You've Got Mail, which is set in a very specific time period, right? Mm -hmm. But in 2007, where people still comment like, oh, there's a lot of Starbucks, you guys. Like, isn't that joke been played out by them? Yes. Oh my God. I didn't even catch that. But that is so true. Starbucks is well on its way to a world takeover in 2007. Like the, the joke, like there's one on every corner. Like that's not even a joke anymore in 2007. It was just accepted. <laughs> yeah. When, she, when he does meet uh, Jocelyn, they do have a, a meet cute in the elevator and she tells the vampire, Oh, I have the same dog collar. But yeah, so when the book closed, oh, did you notice the Buffy reference? Yes, the Buffy. There was Buffy reference, and I, I uh, yeah. And so when you said that it was a Mark Lucas call out, I was like, well, I don't know about that. But then no, I mean, I, the I, I don't, I don't think it was an actual call. Like they cast Mark Lucas, and then they were like, oh, let's oh, put Buffy. a let's put Buffy reference. I think I just thought it was cute. I know, maybe they did. So I, I am a hundred percent sure that one of the writers on this movie is a huge Buffy fan. Yeah, and it was like, if we're doing this in a sci-fi convention, you bet your ass I'm going to put in yeah, a Buffy, Buffy, Buffy shout out. Yeah. <laughs> and then, the, so then the book club gets together, like, we'll actually talk about the scene we were just talking about when he shows up and, he, and he's all sweaty. Um, and Prudy is there. And one of the other kind of unrealistic things about this is that Emily Blunt slash, you know, who plays Prudy, um, is a very, can, is very good at being, doing annoying characters and uh -huh. stick up their butt constipated like characters. And that's how they made Prudy. And she is such a total dick. And yeah. Allegra, Allegra literally almost walks out of the book club because of it. Um, but well, she and Allegra don't like, get along throughout the entire movie. Yeah, no, but everybody else is like, no, stay. And I'm like, dudes. Why? No. Yeah. <laughs> She's such a dick. But like one of the things, she keeps speaking French just like in the book. But one of the things is like Allegra is like making jewelry. And she's like, oh, what kind of jewelry do you like, Prudy? And Prudy's like, Oh, I, I was born, I was the only child of a woman in a commune. So I hate all those hippie handicrafts. And it's just a big F you to Allegra who's like sitting right there. And Allegra's like, um, I'll be, you know, like, but that's- She really was completely socially toned. They make her very socially toned. I have a oh. lot of problems with Prudy's, as she's written for the film, as I'm sure most people do. I will say, however, that Emily Blunt is such a great actress that she still finds the pathos in that character. Yes. And when she's having like her meltdown after her mother passes and her responses to things, you still feel for her. You know, I, I completely agree. And that was a really powerful scene after her mother dies when she fights with Dean. And and e even when the actress is um, with that high school boy. Cause Which her they took way was. further. They took that way further. In the yeah, movie. they really did. They're like constantly flirting and she helps him. What I they love- they make out what I love is that and I even wrote in my notes Mansfield Park is back baby because what I love is that she runs lines with him because he's in the school play Brigadoon and she yeah. runs lines with him and and they get sexy through that so I'm like yeah you know Mansfield Park you know they actually use that uh you, you know uh I shouldn't say a gimmick but that convention there and and um not a convention, but you know what I mean. They they took that element they used from that aspect apart. of the plot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I I loved that. I was like so glad that they did that. I thought it was so clever. Um, 
And you're right. When, when she gets seduced by this younger guy, it's very believable to see why she lets herself walk the line and walk up to that edge and then actually does kiss him and then immediately pulls away and says, we shouldn't be doing this. You know? Fun fact, Emily Blunt is actually only a year older than that actor. Oh my God. So it's like a flip. Like school student. It's like a flipped thing where normally the, the like younger women play, you know, like it's just almost like a gender yeah. thing. So, but here's like, he's supposed to be just turned 18 and she's probably supposed to be what, like 25, yeah, 26, yeah. something like that. But that actor who's playing the high school student is only a year younger than Emily Blunt in real life. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. And I mean, so it's like, we'll just pretend that he, yeah. Cause that guy doesn't look like he's 30. We'll just pretend that he's 18. Yeah, sure. We'll okay. <laughs> he was a reasonably convincing high school student. For the movies. They should have got, I wonder how old, um, uh, oh God, what's his name? The guy from the high school musical movies who's now hot as hell. Yeah, Zac Efron. Oh man, they should have had Zac Efron. He was probably <laughs> 10. Yeah, he movie. was probably 10 in 2007. <laughs> but I think that's what they were going for. You know, that like, yes. all of and also I had made a reference that to me, he was full on Jordan cataloging her. And of course, Kristen didn't get that reference because she never watches my she never watched my so called life, which is shocking. But that kid was definitely putting out like a Jordan Catalano vibe. Those I people who have listened, who have watched my so called life with Claire Danes, one of the best television dramas of all time, will understand what I'm saying. Well, it was only one season long. I mean, it could. It was been- one perfect season. <laughs> um, I own it. We're gonna watch it. You know what? When you come in September, maybe I'll make you watch some of it. Yeah, okay. Well, I've been told unequivocally that this is going to happen, so I'm just accepting my destiny <laughs> at this point. Different fighting it. <laughs> yeah, it just seemed like such an you know, angsty, you know, like it wasn't for me. Like I wasn't. But it is, but it is, but it's also, oh, oh I know this isn't a My Soul Called Life podcast, but I will tell you, if you have any memory of what it was like to be in high school at all, this show is going to be so real to you that it's going to be sometimes painful to watch. Uh, like like it like it says in this movie like Prudy says high school is never over and yeah. I'm not sure I'm not, high school's I'm over sure. high school's never over I mean to some extent that's not really true but to some extent it is I guess for some people for for Prudy um, certainly because she's yeah. never got out from under her inferiority complex which is why she's always having to speak French and right. set herself apart and above. Um, what did you think about actually introducing her mother as a character that we meet and see and interact with? You know, I think we're supposed to, I think it's supposed to increase the pathos of Prudy and for us to feel sorry for her because you're like, and then you oh, understand wow. why she is such a tight ass, she's right? She's really effed up. Yeah. And why she's such a tight ass. Yeah, exactly. Because she's had to, to react to this incredible chaos that is her mother, um, who's constantly, who's like just lights up a, a, a marijuana cigarette I think the actually, uh, it really backfires, I think, because her mother does not come across as like a free spirit, pot smoking hippie. Her mother comes across as having dementia. Oh, yeah. Like, a her mother bit. burn almost burns the house, like could have started, easily started a fire. Like Prudy walks in the house, it's full of smoke because her mother made something and left it in the oven. She's like put hot pans on the carpet. Well, she's like, her mother to doesn't be, come across as like being drug addicted no, or whatever. No, no, no. She she's supposed to be a stoner. Crazy. Like she's supposed to be a, a half baked stoner all the time. Not, but like, it doesn't come across that way. It comes across as this woman should not is not cannot live on her own. She has dementia. She needs to be in a home. And then Prudy is, I mean, to me anyway. And then Prudy's like, "Get out! You're out of here." I'm like, "You need to go with her and get her help." 
Some people just, just can't need help. So. Some people don't even want help. And the other thing is that um, when she, but you're right though, Maggie, you're absolutely right. Because the, when she dies, it's just, it's obviously because she's been driving stoned, right? Yeah. They're like, which she pulled out into traffic. Prudy, yeah. Which is something that Prudy should have known that she was a danger to other people and, yeah, and ex- probably trying to do something about it, it's there are way you can show her mother is a stoner and blah, blah, like just have her forget to pick her up and have her come home and have her be totally stoned you don't need to have her like be a, a fire hazard in multiple ways and things that are clearly unsafe for her yeah. health because then when prudy just ships her off and she ends up dying like as an audience you can't help but feel that prudy is not responsible but had a duty to get her mother help you know what i mean yeah yeah but I, and I understand that the point, though, is to show, like, this is why she is such a tight ass. This is why she's so straight-laced, because her mother was the opposite. There was no structure. Her Everything was a lie. I mean, they did, I liked how they did that thing where Prudy explains about the lies her mother would tell her. Yes, and that's when she kisses the guy. She opens up, and she's like, my mother used to lie to me and say that things had happened when they hadn't, say I had a big par- birthday party when I just hadn't. And mm-hmm. it's so – he finds that so sad, and she's so broken, and then they – they kiss, and that was a, a nice moment. And that's when Dean comes to tell Prudy that her mother has died. But um, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So I, I wanted to talk, if we could segue into, I wanted to talk about each of the discussions, like each sure. of the book clubs that they have. And one of the first ones that they have is Emma, which, of course, this is where we hear, oh, Jocelyn, you're such an Emma. Because obviously, like, she- bam, <laughs> you know, <the> <laughs> thank bam. you, it. <laughs> But one for now, Bernadette will announce the theme of the movie at every discussion, right? <laughs> and you know, and Maggie, you were saying that a lot of the discussion is unsatisfying, or you don't necessarily agree with it. And but but there was something said in this book club discussion that I didn't even pull out or or think of as useful or interesting until the third time I watched this movie. But they're talking about Emma. They make the same complaint you and I had, which is like, you don't feel the sexuality, the, the attraction, the sexual attraction between Emma and Knightley. Um, But they're talking about the, the love affair. And basically um, Jocelyn comes out and says, look, when Emma falls in love with Knightley or realizes she's in love with Knightley, that's when all of her sort of childish preoccupations and, uh, wild fantasies fall away and love in that story is an act of sanity love mm. makes their world more sane instead of being you know this crazy love and love I, is the stabilizing force not the destabilizing force yes and that's mm. when <laughs> that's when they do the grig smackdown as well I, I was really pleased that they kept that in yeah. um he's like what about the sense of menace and prudy's like that's the whole point. It's fake, right? It's supposed to be a, you know, figment of our imagination. And, um, you know, they talk about like, did we scare him away? (laughs) Because like these discussions get very intense, but he holds, he starts to hold his own during the Mansfield park discussion. He does whip out these index cards. And that was so cute. It was so cute. And this is not in the book. He starts talking about how Mansfield park is like the empire strikes back in reverse. That was really cute. Yes, the two cousins. gets over Leia once he finds out she's his sister, but in Mansfield Park, they they fall in love, like, knowing that they're first cousins. It was very, yeah, it was very cute. 
It was so cute. Hugh Dancy is very charming too. So he's, he, I mean, he takes that character and you just really, he's so likable. But I, again, I felt they did, we talked, I, I just, there's so many things in the book that I really miss with him too. Like his, um, they show him emailing his older sisters, but you don't really understand the depth of their connection, I think, so mm. much. And I just found myself missing stuff like that because his older sisters just sounded so rad. I think that they made a good decision to turn him into like a Silicon Valley, like uh, rich guy or whatever. Yeah, I was like, I just pointed to a house and bought it because yeah. I needed to have a house. <laughs> it blows their mind. He's so such a dork and so socially weirdly, you know, kind he's of. He's just awkward. kind of clueless. Yeah, it's but clear that he doesn't. That's an archetype that we know. You know, when, you know, and when we first get introduced to, to Jocelyn, I mean, he's so, they're so different. And, and the, the difference in their ages, I'm really glad that they kept that in and that it is pronounced. I mean, Jocelyn really is a lot older than he, she's still beautiful. I mean, she's a gorgeous yeah, Maria woman, Bello but, plays yeah. Jocelyn and she's probably in her for, uh, mid forties in this movie, right? Yeah. I'm sure at least, at least, yeah. yeah. She's a beautiful woman, but, but there's obviously a, like a 10 year age difference or more between them and they didn't shy away from that, um, which yeah. I appreciated. So we'll, let's move on to the um, Mansfield Park discussion, which for me, the book does not include a Mansfield Park book club because that's when Prudy's mom dies. Mm. Um, and so I am so glad that they kept one in, thank God, because, <laughs> you know, Mansfield Park. So we can talk about the, the fact that Sylvia is um, clearly the Fanny Price. And what happens is that she she has her sort of cross to bear with having been divorced from Daniel. A number of things in the lead up to the meeting make her more emotional. The first thing is she bumps into Daniel at a Whole Foods mm. and he's dressed very preppy, which, okay, so my mom and dad split up. And so there are some things in here I could totally relate to, like you change your you do like a makeover kind of thing. Like yeah. Well, she did too. And that's well her response to him seeing him, I think. Yeah. She calls Jocelyn later and she was like, he was wearing a sweater with a zipper. He was wearing one yeah. of the half pull, you know, like pullover sweaters with the zipper. Wasn't, wasn't the woman he was dating wearing a tennis, like yes. they had come from the club or something. Yeah, like like they're the playing tennis club. or something like and that. And they're so preppy. And I totally had a reaction when I first watched that scene because I, was so like would have been like her like oh my god he's changed he's happier he's got you know like he's classier now and and he's away from me and you know I, I totally would have I see the emotional impact and then the other thing is he comes by he comes by her house where she's living now alone and he tries to I mean it was their house together but he tries to mow the lawn and she's like get the F out of here. She's like, you don't yeah. live here anymore, but you can, he you does can that in the book, him. doesn't he? He like shows up to try to fix stuff. Yeah. He, he's like, I'm coming by to fix the shower. And that's in the book. She actually says, fuck you and hangs up the phone. Yeah. Which in this, she comes out in her like little robe and she's like, get out of here. You, I will pay someone to mow the lawn. This is not your house anymore. Well, like you can't do the things a husband does anymore, but this is our first yeah. inkling that he's sort of missing his marriage, but she mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, she just feels very like violated. She's like, I'm trying to exhume your ghost. And my, so my dad <laughs> also came by to mow the lawn after he had peaced out. Um, and that's a complicated story. I'm not trying to say like it was one person or the other, but I am trying, what I am saying is that it was very weird. <laughs> like he yeah. came in afterwards and like had a bowl of cereal and I was like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> I, think, I don't know. I think it was good to include that too, because you want to show Sylvia, like you, Sylvia spends maybe half the movie just like crying all the time. 
Yeah. So you to have show. you need to show her. She and she gets. She says, "I think I'm at the point where I'm angry with them now." You know, like you need to show yeah. her have that backbone, having that backbone. But, but yeah, because Sylvia is clearly the Fanny Price. So when they all get together and they have this Mansfield Park discussion, uh, Allegra is crapping all over Fanny Price. She's like, "Oh, she's such a goody two shoes," and you know, Prudy is offended, and then everybody, you know, but. Um, Sylvia is the one who, and I'm going to insert the clip in here actually because it was it was cathartic for me. But Sylvia goes off, and she's like, "Fanny Price was the rock. She supported her family. She was decent and loyal and hard." She was the Horton. Yeah, Horton. Yeah. She's Horton hatches the egg. Exactly. I hate Fanny Price. Excuse me, we are we're not electing the homecoming queen. Okay, I mean yes, if this were high school. Yes, we all know Elizabeth Bennett would be most popular and that Fanny would be least. Who's Elizabeth Bennett? Uh, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, well, don't give away too much because I haven't read that one yet. You don't know Pride and Prejudice? No. Um, I think I read somewhere that Fanny Price was Austin's favorite. Fanny's boring. She's faithful. She's Horton Hatches the Egg. She sits on that nest and she never, ever wavers. Well, she'd probably be easier to like if she would just allow some weakness in others. She doesn't allow it in herself. True. Now, I didn't see what was so bad about Henry Crawford. Uh, yes, thank you, Greg. Why does it have to be Edmund? Well, Austin, she's always suspicious of people who are too charming. Just once, I'd like to pick up Mansfield Park and see Fanny end up in the sack with Henry Crawford. Oh. Yes, yes. You can't read these novels without wondering if she doesn't have a little thing for the naughty boys. Well, who doesn't? Except for Fanny Price. Okay, look, I love Fanny. She works hard. She puts her family's needs above her own. Mom, it's okay. And she I... never, ever stops loving Edmund, ever. Even when he's stupid enough to do something like take up with Mary Crawford. Mansfield Park would be safe, didn't you? I don't think we're gonna get through all six books. Reading Jane Austen is a freaking minefield. And it's this passion that was nice. I like that. Yes, yes. The only, you know, the only thing about that that bothered me about all that is they keep pronouncing mispronouncing Mariah. They keep saying a Maria. Yeah, I think that was well, intentional. You know, you know, Kristen, nobody's perfect. Um, I also wonder, maybe one of the writers is a big. Uh, a Mansfield Park fan because they've included a discussion. They gave a really impassioned speech in favor of Fanny Price. I wonder yeah. if one of the people who adapted the book for a movie was like a big Mansfield Park fan and wanted to make sure that Fanny and the book kind of got its due. If that was true, I think they would have gone nuts hearing everybody say Maria instead of a Mariah. But I think it's possible. And, you know, because you're absolutely right. Uh, Mansfield Park is not that like commercially beloved. So to purposefully add that in when it's not in the book is a surprising thing. I mean, I think it serves a point, important thing, point in the story, but also I, I think it's entirely possible that they had someone in Mansfield Park's go corner going, yeah, we have to add it, right? Um, yeah. It's called the, the, Jane, the Jane Austen Book Club. If we don't talk about all the books, you know we're going to hear it. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> also that, like fan service or whatever. Like, But, you know, uh, a lot of Austen fans are down on it too. But the other thing I wanted to say is that they also um, did a call out to the fact that every time you read the book, you feel differently about mm -hmm. Fanny and Henry Crawford. And Bernadette actually says, just once, I'd like to 
pick up yeah. this book and see Fanny in the sack with Henry Crawford. And I think there yeah. was some satisfaction to that. And so they put their finger on that aspect of the book as well, which I think was great and, and good that they did that. And they, they pulled out the sexiness of it at Mansfield Park. So it was a good discussion overall. Yeah. And so in the meantime, what's happening between Grig and Jocelyn is that Jocelyn keeps pushing Grig. She, Jocelyn has invited Grig to the book club for Sylvia to give Sylvia like a fling in the sack with the younger man. So she keeps pushing Grig to go out with Sylvia and all the time she's feeling, feeling these feelings, but unwilling to acknowledge them. She actually might be attracted to Grig. And so that's when they wind up at the Northanger Abbey part of the story where Grig and his gross subdivision, ew, you live in that development? That, you know, like he bought they, they do come across as very snobby. They, uh, yeah, Jocelyn especially is just like, oh, yeah. development. Um, and she's always in these like cape, like beautifully hand-knitted Irish wool <laughs> sweaters and these like large Native American pattern wraps and things like that. You're like, oh, whatever, Jocelyn. I love her big coat. One of the things I like about movies is when costume designers and continuity people, they put characters in the same outfit for more than one scene. Yeah, and I agree. Jocelyn, That's how real people are. Like, I yeah. wear the same pants like four days in a row. Yeah, my favorite thing. <laughs> I'm always wearing, you know, my favorite shirt or whatever. Jocelyn has this massive, almost like a blanket slash coat that yeah. she's wearing in a lot of scenes. It's this was like a gold, black, and white printed, like animal print thing. And she's always wearing it. And uh, it's really cute, but it is, it's definitely quirky. <laughs> um, well, they definitely did. I mean, they, they did. I think the costuming in this was really good too. I mean, look at Prudy, right? She's got that kind of unflattering, but very like French esque bob. And all of her clothes are like tight, um, yeah. high necked. Yeah. Sometimes they'll have like a bit of sheer so you can actually see some, some skin, but she's very like buttoned up like very literally buttoned up. I found my, myself wondering where Prudy shops in this movie because I would actually oh, like to buy her more things like that, but I don't know where you would ever even find. Probably, I think you could find stuff like that at, um, oh, like Ann Taylor. Yeah, she just have like a very Talbot. Oh no, she goes to like Talbot's or Lord and Taylor. She doesn't wear a lot of cardigans though. It's this very mm. specific like- Maybe Chanel like Lord and Taylor. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it like a department like a, store, yeah. a high end department store, but not like not Bloomingdale's. But but yeah, so they they wind up going to his house for Northanger Abbey, and this was very cute. And one of the things I remembered from the original viewing of the movie is that when they show up at his house, this is very cute. He has this sort of antechamber to his home. He has one of those like super An high ceiling chamber. <laughs> yeah, he has entry one of those, hall. It's entry, entry, entry hall. hall. Well, he has one of those <laughs> super high ceiling. You know, it's one of those McMansions that ha you come in and it has a super high ceiling and the staircase or whatever. And he has tricked it all out with Halloween stuff and on timers. And so they come in and it's like being in a haunted house, and which is very cute. But then Sylvia starts freaking out, which is exactly what I would do because I'm yeah. always terrified by haunted houses. And he has to stop it and be like, it's okay, it's okay. And then they like hug and he has to like take care of her. And they they develop this chemistry where he's like, oh, I read Udolfo, The Mysteries of Udolfo. And she's like blown away by the fact that he did that. Which well, I, I read The Mysteries of Udolfo. So yeah, yeah I read The Monk, um, which is- Oh, maybe you know, that's the one I read. Uh, I can't remember. You probably read Udolfo. I mean- I read The Monk. Let me go on a, a brief digression. The Monk is a very weird book to read. Um, I, you know, we, not a lot of people who read Northanger Abbey feel the need to read it. 
I was talking to my um, father-in-law, my Kevin's stepfather, it, who when I was living in the DC area, and he did too. And he he went to a lot of Smithsonian night kind of things. And he said, he turned to me, we were having dinner. He's like, Kristen, we're still going to that thing on Wednesday, right? And I'm like, uh, 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 oh, yeah, because I, I must have said yes to it, but then forgot about it. He's like, you know, the monk. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll read the monk, right? But I, I was thinking in my head. So I, I go and I, I was like, well, there must be some Jane Austen thing where they're reading the monk. And he knows I love Jane Austen, so he's taking me to this thing. So I read the monk. And then we show up at the Smithsonian. We go to the hall. And it's oh a God. talk on it's a talk on Edvard Munch, painter of <laughs> the, of the Scream fame. <laughs> and so I read this ridiculous gothic romance, which I'm actually glad because it gave me a fla- a taste of the flavor yeah. of what Jane Austen is talking about. But yeah, is the, the monk the one that has the like 200 page story about some guy traveling at night and they get robbed, but it has nothing to do with the main plot? No, uh, it, it's it has to do with a, yeah. a monk who I'm, I must have read mysteries of Adolfo then who gets real se- it gets real sexy uh and um I, I do remember that part in Northanger Abbey though where she's like typically in this type of novel there would I will not bore the reader yeah. by recounting a, to a, a yeah. tangent story that does not relate and I very much appreciated that uh bit of satire because that was one of the things that drove me crazy reading the, those type of books <laughs> yeah yeah and so and and, and so and anyway Sylvia is like oh Sylvia by the way has gotten all sexy right now. She's she's had her makeover, so she has her beautiful. She's straightened her curly hair, which is supposed to make people <gasps> more beautiful. Um, yeah, she's lost the glasses, which, as you all know, that's when we find out that the ugly girl has been hot all along. That's movie um, speak for got pretty, right? Yeah, yeah and she's anymore. she's wearing and a low cut. You don't have crazy curly hair when you straight curly hair. Yeah, so so then that then Jocelyn starts to get jealous, and then and turns pride, into a total bitch. Then Pride and Prejudice happens, which is which happens at a library dinner, right? So Sylvia works at the state library. They have a big benefit dinner and dancing at the library, and Daniel's going to show up and be there, which makes the stakes really high when Grig picks up Jocelyn, and then they're going to be really late. And so this is when Jocelyn and Grig have their big Pride and Prejudice blow up moment where he is like, hey, how'd you like that Ursula Le Guin? Because, of course, all through the movie, he's still asking her, have you read the Le Guin? I, I recommended the science fiction. And she's like, I prefer to read books about real people. She's pissed mm, off. Oh, at snap. He's driving too slowly. And so it's this Pride and Prejudice blow up that they have, which I thought was great. He accuses her of trying to meddle in other people's lives, but not, you know, like be present in her own. And she's like, if wanting my friend to be happy means I'm meddling, then I hope I never stop meddling. And it was sort of an impassioned defense of her MNS, right? I just, so I remember in our discussion about the book, we talked about how Greg was like, was really ridiculous, you know, showing up with a filthy car and running out of gas and all of this stuff. And we were totally on Jocelyn's side on that one. But in the movie, I felt opposite where they just made her be so unrelentlessly bitchy because she's really jealous. 
Yeah. That I just felt it was just you you really you're just like stop beating up on Greg. Like what's wrong yeah, with you? Yeah. He's so cute and he's so sweet and he wants to Right, drive. exactly. And so it just comes off as her just being and you know it's because she's jealous. And yeah. so then it almost even discounts the things that he do that are legitimately like messed Annoying, up. That night. Obnoxious. Yeah. But and she just is so rude to him from the very beginning. Yeah. Are you attracted to Sylvia? Yeah, she's um she's nice. She's more than nice. She's smart and funny. And she's in love with her husband. Well, she needs to get over that. Why don't you stop interfering? Let Sylvia work out her own life. It's interfering to want my best friend to be happy. If that's interfering, I hope I never stop. What about me? Am I your friend? Or am I just some, uh, some widget to help you make Sylvia feel better about herself? Why did you invite me to be part of your book club? What went through your mind the first time you saw me? There's a man who is dying to read every book Jane Austen ever wrote. Is that what you thought? No. But I thought, what a beautiful woman. I hope she looks over at me. I thought if I read your favorite books that you would read mine, but no, 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 you just want to be obeyed. That's why you have dogs. Yeah, and, um, you know, he, he basically says, you're closed to new ideas and you're closed off to me. And then they have this sort of hate dance where he t they finally arrive and then he dances with her on the dance floor and he's a great dancer, but it's sort of sexy, but it's also like sort of tension, which mm -hmm. is a very Pride and Prejudice thing to do. And that really worked for me. I mean, that it really did. And this is the same di uh, dinner where Allegra shows up having just dumped Corinne, right? So we all remember why that yeah. happens, right? I thought they did a good job with that, where they have her tell the story about the little boy at her high at her uh, elementary school, and then she finds a letter that's supposedly from an editor. <laughs> but the way the letter was written was just like mean. It was not the type of you would get a form letter back. Yes, no one would get a rejection letter with that type of detailed feedback. And the feedback was like, yeah, this story was cruel and unkind. And that story we felt really unbelievable. Who would believe a self-centered lesbian skydiving? And yeah, it was, well, I mean, they, I know they wanted to make it clear that she was taking Allegra stories, but they could have just said the titles of the works and it would have been. It would have been enough. Yeah. It would yeah. Have been and then Allegra shows up and is just like bonkers <laughs> off the wall upset. Yeah. And, and that's when Sil Sylvia is like, you don't just throw people away, right? Mm -hmm. And she's trying to impose her new philosophy of like not letting go and not walking away. And Allegra calls, calls BS on it. And he's like, no. She's like, no, you know, I dumped the bitch or whatever, which is an actual line from the movie. And meanwhile, Prudy is back at the table, the library table, also being absolutely horrible to Dean. This Drunk isn't, this isn't even... Yeah. This is an evening he of trying women being, yeah, he was trying. He, Dean had, was such a meathead and obviously such a, you know, like bad at being a husband. But in this scene, they have him show up and he, and try to really try. And that's when you just start to really feel for him and feel like maybe I guess they could be back together, but he's still so awkward at it. Like, I think the big problem is with Dean is they set the bar so low in that first scene. He moves upwards in terms of, you're liking him as a character throughout the rest of the movie. Basically, every other scene he's in, I think that he's a pretty decent human being. And when she's freaking out in their hotel room, I think he actually comes across very well. 
but that they just made him so awful in that first scene with them together. You kind of never really forgive him for it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, how did these two people have no common ground at all? They yeah. have. And then she is just awful at the, you know, Dean thinks that Austin is this, the capital of Texas. Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, her mother has just died and she's really drunk and having a breakdown. And did you notice, by the way, that she has a breakdown? She flees sobbing to the ladies' room and it's Allegra. Yeah. After her. They, I, I think it's because they're the closest in age. Mm. So they, they and because Allegra herself had just bonded. been so upset. They sort of bonded. I mean, that's sort of when you realize yeah. the book club has sort of brought them together in sympathy for each other. And they, they kind of hated each other on site. Yeah. At the first meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, when you think about it, Marianne and uh, Fanny Price uh, would definitely hate each other. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it's almost like they're trying to play off that. And it's, uh, it's Allegra that has this sort of accident where which puts her in the hospital and the next thing that happens is that sylvia she falls off a climbing wall and hits her head and sylvia and daniel meet up at the hospital and this is what makes me really hate him is that um they're there together and he's talking about is this nice that we're all together as a family so normal i was like shut up daniel you left. You're the one who left. I became you, Maggie, in watching this movie. Is yeah. that every subsequent scene with Daniel? Daniel, I really hate him, and I feel I was like, I'm like, you left. Stop sniffing around, Sylvia. And then I found him to be very selfish. For me, that character, and I mean, not to, Jimmy Spitz did a great job, like you pointed out. He's he's a really great actor. Um, you know, he became president of the United States in the West Wing, and I'm cool with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a problem with Daniel. The same problem I did in the book is that he represents everything for me that middle life, mid man, man, midlife crisis, selfish bullshit that I have no patience for. Like he breaks up the marriage. He nukes their lives. And then he realizes he misses her and he (laughs) wants to come back. And he was so wrong. It's just that he's a man and didn't feel appreciated or special. (laughs) And it's just like if he bullshit. had been really saying that'll be me and like that can be you and you'll be on your own yeah because i don't put up with that shit right well if he had been truly contrite at the end when he shows up for the persuasion meeting if he had been really contrite it would be different but he really wasn't he just rolls up and he's like hey i read this book I really i'm like wearing it. A, i'm wearing a flowy shirt because we're at the beach and i brought yeah. this book <laughs> And Sylvia's like, whatever, you can stay. But anyway, in the scene in the hospital, she's like, I, I, I'm a new woman, Daniel. And he's like, yeah. I can see that. I can really <sighs> see that. And what he's talking about is that she looks great. Oh, yeah. So I find him very great. emotionally manipulative. Yes. I, I find him. I, I didn't like that. I didn't like the way he spoke to her at the at the hospital. He, he was clearly trying to insinuate himself. And But what she says that was illuminating, she's like, remember, so at, at the beginning, at the first meeting at the coffee shop, she looks up and they written a cute little quote of the day and it's loving means letting go Mm -hmm. and she says at the scene at the hospital she's like letting go has taught me a lot and you realize she's moved on and she's like oh and she's She's just such a cooler person on her own that that's one of also the real tragedies of the story for me is when she ends up with him well she's maybe she's still a cool person and they've both sort of learned something from from their little adventure you know but um that was an expensive adventure yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> really. And that's on him. It's a that's lot of lawyers him. for an adventure. <laughs> yeah, it is. 
So, but they also have a sense, their sense and sensibility meeting. They have it in the hospital. And Jocelyn even says to Bernadette beforehand, she's like, if Greg starts making a lot of little comments, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And what's satisfying about this sense and sensibility meeting is that Greg and Jocelyn trade a ton of barbs, which are great. So what they start talking about at the sense and sensibility book club is what, why Colonel Brandon didn't make a pass or did, wasn't interested romantically in mm-hmm. Mrs. Dashwood, the mother of the two girls. Yeah. What about Mrs. Dashwood? <laughs> which is not which is not a line of critical analysis that many people follow and i think there's i never even occurred to me no because once you're over 30 you are you have no sexual appeal and no no you don't exist basically as a person anymore well that's exactly and, what they said in the movie except for they said 25 which is wrong because Anne elliot i believe is 27 in persuasion yeah. so that was mm-hmm. a an incorrect thing for them to even say but they're like oh after you're 25 nothing interesting could possibly happen in your life yeah. according to austin but um, that was just true in her day. I mean, you wouldn't marry a, an older lady. I mean, that's why they object to uh, Reginald de Courcy marrying Lady Susan is like she doesn't have that many uh, childbearing age years left. Of or, you Yeah, know, if it's okay for like a 60-year-old naval guy to marry an 18-year-old, like just by course, that's normal. Why would you marry like a widowed 48-year-old? You know, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, but of course they're using this um, Brandon and, you know, the older Mrs. Dashwood as a stand-in to Jocelyn for being like the older woman in the relationship. So um, Grig says, like, maybe, you know, like, why wasn't Colonel, you know, they say, they pose the question, how about Colonel Brandon and Mrs. Dashwood? And Grig was like, well, maybe Mrs. Dashwood wouldn't give him the time of day, which is a barb at Jocelyn. And then he complains that Brandon is a nice guy and women don't want nice guys. And Jocelyn gets- Oh my God, yes. Oh, it's so great. Such a great dig in where she's like, well, I've noticed men who complain about that the loudest usually don't turn out to be all that nice. Oh, yes. It was so great. That's that whole like nice guys syndrome thing, right? She's like- Where it's like, I'm the nice guy. I like you. You have to like me back. I deserve- Yeah. To have you like me back. And it's like, that's not a nice guy. That's called being an asshole. She's like, Greg, take your fedora and go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was just so glad that someone called in in like a broader platform than just someone on the internet. um, Called (laughs) out that whole nice guy idea that the guys who are like, girls don't like nice guys. It's like, hey, maybe you're not a nice guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they have, yeah, they have this, that's how they use. So again, this is not like this super in-depth, insightful critique of sense and sensibility. However, they use the story Mm -hmm. to illustrate their, you know, to trade barbs or to make points, you know, for their own uh, aims. And let's say that we, we appreciate how the film's use of the book discussions furthers the plot and relationship of the characters yeah and it's nice to know that they actually did read the book and are talking about actual plot elements of the books which you know is is great to have in any movie or to be exposed to in any way I have to admit that I did despite the fact that it happened six times very much enjoy the minute long montage of all the characters reading oh yeah each of the books just because I like watching seeing people read uh, so they would show like for every, when we went to every new book, they would show like a quick montage of all the characters, what edition they were reading, how they, where they were reading, 
I loved how um, you could see the covers. You could see the covers yeah, of each different yeah. edition, which I really liked. And, you know, those are real books that we have all held in our hands. I mean, I recognize some of the editions they actually are reading. And I'm like, that's my book, you know? And I yeah, I really enjoyed really I really, I thought that was really cute. You know, uh, um, Allegra would be reading um, in bed at night when her partner was asleep or Prudy would sit there with like her, her perfect little cup of tea and her perfect little book reading. And I don't know. I thought it, I just, it happens six times, but I still enjoyed it. And well, and like, I, I forgot to mention it, but when, when they're at that dinner and they're discussing pride and prejudice, um, there's another thing that they call out to the book where Prudy is talking about mothers and how mothers are time bombs and how mothers will mm, basically. Mm. And, and then Bernadette's like, don't you think you're giving Mrs. Bennett a little too much credit? Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess, you know, we all have this burden, <laughs> burden to bear. We have to get out from under our mothers, you know? So that's another. How did you feel about Bernadette in the film? I felt like they kind of normalized her a bit. They did make her more normal and less quirky. Yeah. Uh, and less hit, like weird floaty hippie to be like I'll do whatever wear whatever well, it, was, it was almost like because they made Prudy's mother oh yeah so crazy yes, they had to dial back family. Bernadette or Bernadette would just seem like Prudy's mom yes one more one more pr- mother and um at that dinner they did keep all her mar- sort of her her marital history in because at that dinner yeah that's about pride and prejudice they're talking about pride and prejudice and she goes well I've had every marriage in this book line Um, that was really cute and it it, it, she does seem wise I mean Bernadette is always the shoulder that people are crying on especially Prudy when um Prudy she's kind of the only one that can stand her at least in the beginning yes well and and Prudy admits like I'm thinking about sleeping with one of my students which is this is a terrible line and I actually noted it down in my notes how much I hated it but Prudy's like he looks at me like I'm a dish no. of ice cream. And He's the spoon and I'm the dish of ice cream. Yeah. Um, and I like Bernadette's response, though, because I had the subtitles on. And her, her response is, exhales. <laughs> she, when she said that, she just goes, <sighs> And there's a lot. Even I forget. Um, I can look up the actress who played Bernadette. She's very good. Um, but even in her, that response, there was a lot she portrays a lot in that like who I remember those days that's tough and there's also like girl (laughs) you need to get it together (laughs) there was a lot that was conveyed with just that exhale (laughs) (laughs) Kathy Baker that's her name I always have IMD on my IMDB open when we're doing a movie discussion she does have a very middle-aged lady look to her except at the the end she's really glammed up well, she's in Picket Fences, which I think, I don't know if you ever saw that show, Picket Fences, no. but uh, that's just kind of like her deal. She does play the kind of wise uh, world, not weary, but like the wise woman who's lived in the world and is okay. guidance to younger, foolish women. She has em- this empathy. She has a lot of empathy. You know, you feel like she's empathetic. Yeah. Although in the first scene we meet her, she just monologues and talks about how men just monologue. Yeah. And- <laughs> I'm glad they kept that. They wouldn't want you to get a word in edgewise. And then Prudy goes... Well, I think, but that's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then she talks right over her. That's from the book. And I was glad they kept that in. Yes. And so our final book then becomes Persuasion, where Prudy is very, very close to sleeping with her young, sexy man from high school. I mean, that guy is hot. That kid was hot. hot. But Prudy is just a really, it's hard to like her when she does things that are so monumentally stupid. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, but that's the point. Like you are rooting for her not to make this stupid mistake and then she doesn't. But, but to the point about him being so hot, 
in the scene where they're getting together for the first time at that coffee shop, he stops by and taps on the window to say hi to Prudy. And he's mm-hmm. so good looking that when he walks away, Doc oh, yeah. actually leaps up to look, watch him go walk away and box her head on the window. Um, I loved that because I've done that before. <laughs> not, not necessarily to look after a guy, but I've definitely leaned forward to look at something out of the window and hit my head on the glass. This happened to me multiple times. And so I very much appreciated that detail because it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that happens. <laughs> it was so cute. Um, so she she tells Dean. Dean is in a cutoff shirt with no sleeves, like playing video playing games. video games at the house. <laughs> and she comes in with her. It's very weird because she's wearing like a seaside like outfit. She's got like a wrap on and whatever. Um, and she's like, "Oh, Dean, I'm going to the shore because we're doing persuasion." And she leaves. And he's he's like, "Whatever, uh, you're, you're stupid." Oh, he was working on the car. For yeah. that scene or something like doing something very manly oh yeah that's right the first time he's working on the car doing some manly and she leaves yeah then she pulls over in her and changes from her conservative beachy looking thing to like a strapless dress and i'm like you probably just could have worn this strapless dress i mean he's, guy. he's not gonna if you just show some skin <laughs> like i don't know i mean the point was to show that she was deceit she was engaged in deceived. deception Yes, yeah. and so she goes, and she, this is this is the moment where she realizes, oh, I shouldn't be sleeping with my student. She goes to meet the guy, and she's trying to cross the street, and Amy Mann's Save Me is playing, which is a good song. Um, but anyway, she's trying, waiting across the street, and it changes from don't walk to walk, but she doesn't start crossing. Instead, she looks at the signal that's changed from walk, and it says, what would Jane do? What? Because they what talk about James that. Do? What was the book they talk about it? How Jane Austen? They have a discussion about whether the books could be a, a guide for morality. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. Oh, I didn't even write it down, but I have it in my notes. I have it in my notes. So when they're talking about um, sense and sensibility, Jocelyn right. says Austen is always on the side of order. She's always on the side of, of order rather than chaos and in love. And so, and Grig goes. So you're saying this is a rule book? Yeah, and he's pissed off. He's like, "You're saying this is a rule book?" And she's like, "Yeah," and that's exactly it. like we said. You know, the Eleanor playbook. I mean, it's it's right. it's, a, it's a guide. There are guiding ideals in it, and that's what happens to Prudy. She says, "What would Jane do?" And it stops her from having an affair, and um, she doesn't cross the street because the flashing signal. So I have to say, while I appreciate that they're using. Austin as a, a, a everyday practical morality, uh, you know, which is definitely what it has been for me. Having it flash on a street sign signal is so cheesy. And really, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, okay, this is the dumbest movie ever. Like, I, I, think, I think again, I think again, that's something to do with the form, the the form of storytelling we're using. In a book, you can have the character think internally. Yes. Right. Yes. But for a film, we need to somehow show Prudy is questioning this decision, not because of something internal to her, but because she's thinking about the discussions they've had about Jane Austen. Yes. So it's like, how do we show that Prudy is making this decision based on Jane Austen? We have to have it reflected on some kind of external visual medium for the audience. Yes. 
Uh, I, I'm with you. Actually, you're right. But there's no easy way to do that. And, and they kind of this did is, it. Yeah, this is why people in movies and television shows always have way more hallucinations than in <laughs> real life, right? Like they're constantly hallucinating shit, yeah. reading things wrong, hearing people say things, having these elaborate daydream fantasies because we have to tell the audience what they're and, feeling internally in an ex- external manner. You're so right. I mean, there has to be some kind of of way to it, that. having said that it was super cheesy <laughs> that yeah even the like walk even the walk don't walk itself was just like i see yeah. what you're doing and it's really <laughs> obvious <laughs> and so she doesn't um you know it doesn't show what she does i assume she's like tells the kid like sorry kid but then she goes back. i don't think she even crosses the street i don't think she ever crosses the street he sees her yeah leading across the street and i think she probably just looks at him and turns away and walks away and that's what happens well, she probably could have, she should have given him some sign, like, no, I decided not to do this, but she I probably, like, waves, like, sorry. You're like, sorry. But anyway, sorry, I decided not to break the law and sleep with you. <laughs> he may be 18, but he's still her student. Yeah, and that would be bad. So we're all glad she didn't do that because Jane asked her, what would you do? And, and it's like you're married. That's your, you know, you've gotten up in front of everybody and sworn vows, and you have an obligation to try to fix it. Yeah, if only Daniel had that same. If only Daniel had read Austin earlier. Well, yeah, right, you know. And so she goes back to Dean. And this is another thing that actually really bothered Kevin. Like, I'm so, like, I shouldn't say proud, but I, I'm so impressed, I guess I should say, by Kevin and his his true, his actual knowledge of Austin is actually very good. Um, and it's because he, he was, listens to the podcast. <laughs> probably. But he was watching it with me. So what happens is Prudy goes home. She's holding her copy of Persuasion in her little cute dress. And she goes in and Dean's in his cutoff shirt playing video games. And she's crying. She's crying. And she walks in and she says, I want you to read this. And he's like, you know, I'm not going to, you know, like, I'm not going to read this. This, I actually... Okay, go. We see what you're gonna say. He goes, "This is a test, isn't it?" She goes, "It's not a test." She's like, "It's about two people who used to love each other and they don't anymore, and it's how, about how they persuade themselves to love each other again." And later the night that, and I was like thinking to myself, I'm "Like that's not what persuasion is. Like that's not the yeah. plot." And later when we were falling asleep, we're in bed, and Kevin goes, "Hey," and I'm like, "What?" And he's like. That's not the plot of persuasion. <laughs> That's like I love that it's been bothering you all this time. I I really disliked that scene too because his res- his response to it felt really real to me as well. He's yeah, like, you know, I'm not a reader. You know, I can't. This do isn't it. this feels like a test? You know, I'm gonna fail. It's like if someone walks in without any prompting, hands you a book, and is like, if you want to save our marriage, you have to read this book, this entire book right now. She's like, what? It's a a little unfair to him. But then she's like sobbing and she's like starts reading it. And he's like, you're not going to read the whole thing. And she's like, he's like, fine, one page. But the thing is, the start of persuasion is not romantic. So there she is. And she starts talking about Sir Walter and the baronetage. And I'm like, this is not honest. A lot of a lot of Austin's books are not like first page going to grab you. They tend to like Mansfield Park. It tells like the history of. Does it tell the history of the family or something? Mariah like Miss Mariah Ward of Huntington. Um, yeah, they're they're not like I'm. Oh, I'm so interested. Except for obviously Pride and Prejudice, which has one of the best first lines in the history of English literature. Right. But you know, for the most part, they're not going to be like, ooh. Yeah, we're talking so about a guy it's in a not book. Like the most romantic start. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to and his credit, he reads the whole book with her. He listens to it enough to like get hooked, which is great considering the beginning of that book is not something that easily hooks the modern reader. But yeah, she's she's bawling and reading it and it's supposed to be satirical and funny. But then when we cut back to them, as I said, he's learned to read. He's, he's reading very articulately and they read it together and they're back in love because that's the power of Austin. I personally think that that particular couple is very ill-matched, um, extremely ill-matched, but that's the story we're supposed to accept that they've once upon a time loved each other and got married. So, hey. And so Pretty doesn't even show up for the persuasion discussion, but you know who does show up uh, on the beach where everybody is waiting? Uh, Daniel. Eh, and as we said, he rolls up. He's like, hey, I read this book. And Sylvie's like, whatever, I guess you can stay. But he's so entitled. You know, he's not. That's my problem. Yes, yes, yes. That's my problem with this entire character. He feels entitled to this specific brand of happiness that he decides whatever it is at that certain time, no matter how it affects everyone else. Yes. And Does he ever see Sylvia as like an actual person? Well, and that's not the way he is in the book. In the book, he is very afraid of reject being rejected, and he knows he should be rejected. But mm-hmm. in the movie, he's not. And, and you know, he writes the letter to her, whatever. Like, I guess his explanation was good enough. But, yeah, he, he never really has to suffer. She never turns the, the screws on him. She never – he never and comes And despite to- showing her growing and becoming, like, such a stronger, more independent person, I don't uh, – I think we talked about this when we talked about the book. To me, it just feels like such a step backwards for her character to just be like, oh, you're, I love you. Come back, you know? Yeah, and then the other, the other thing they do – so, I mean, we, we have mixed feelings about it, but that's how their, their sort of storyline concludes. He, he shows up, then he writes her a letter, then they smooch, and then Allegra finds them smooching, and is like, oh, my God. Well, she's um, just finding them smooching. I mean, they're about to, like, They're, like, on. making out, yeah. But, but, but at the persuasion thing, the other thing that happens is they, they do a cute thing to Jocelyn. They pull a Northinger Abbey – where he, uh, uh, Greg shows up with a woman on his arm and uh, she's like, oh no, it's a woman. He brought a woman to the book club. And then when it's his sister, she's like, oh my God, thank you. No, know it's his sister. sister. Come on. They have a whole thing where Bernadette knows two of his sisters. <laughs> and, so they yeah. brought, and they show him Ryan. I mean, the audience knows like he's not going to just show up with some rando lady. Yeah, just like Catherine Marlin in Northanger Abbey. She actually does not assume that it's, a wife it's she knows she's like from the simple proposition of having his having acknowledged that he had a sister she realized it was yeah. probably a sister but anyway yeah. yeah the sister takes jocelyn aside and is like look you have to make the first move so what jocelyn does and this made me cry this morning hmm. now, i don't know why this moves me so much but we talked about it before in when we talked about the book she goes home and she finally reads the yeah oh, i loved it i loved it i loved it i loved it and she's up all night, and she drives to his. She's so moved by it. She drives to his house. It's five a.m. She sleeps against the car window, and he comes out. She in the finished morning. reading it at two twenty-one in the morning. Oh, you you saw like, the they clock. show they show her clock next to her when she closes the book and puts it down, and it's two twenty-one in the morning. Oh, and she just she waits for him outside his house, which she's so excited, and and to me that sort of it's a breakthrough in a way it's her setting aside her pride um, and finally meeting him in the middle, finally acknowledging him as an intellectual equal, finally going to him. And I don't know, it made me cry when he comes out and he sees her there and they, 
she just can't stop talking about how much she loves it and then they kiss and it's it's really great that was and, one of my favorite parts of the book and the movie yeah me too um and she's wearing that and then coat they show, she's, wearing that yeah, coat. she's wearing that coat and it's super <laughs> early morning the sun is just coming up and they show the paper guy driving by and I couldn't help but think like what the hell's paper guy think is going on like it's so weird they're making out in the middle of the street and the, and the paper guy is like driving around them <laughs> to continue on his route when, when Prudy changes pulls over and changes clothes there's like a little girl on a skateboard who's like staring at her like you're having an affair aren't you? <laughs> yeah, like this girl knows yeah everybody knows Prudy she knows everybody knows and then everything's good so all the storylines get tied up and we fade to the very next year it's at the library dinner and Bernadette shows up with a very handsome man and she says oh I'm working on my Spanish he's working on my English his English and I know me esposo and then everyone's like oh my god Bernadette got married so it's kind of fun and and by the way, I, 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 I could be wrong, but in the very beginning title sequence where she's at yoga and some guy like hits her in the face, it looks very similar to this guy. So I like to think in my head that that's tied it back to the credit sequence where she like gets together and gets married with this guy. And then well, in the book, though, she's in like, like you said, she's in Costa Rica or something. Yeah, she goes to Costa Rica. And she shows up looking like the most normal she's ever looked. Oh, yeah, she's very glam. I mean, she's gotten her hairstyle and she's sort of like Sylvia. She's like gotten all glammed out and it's just this black tie dinner. And then uh, pretty bothered me. And why did it bother you? Oh, because she had to make just, herself beautiful. I just don't like this idea that, and you know what? I think part of what it is, at least with Bernadette, I see it as Bernadette is the type where she will just kind of like change. Oh, yeah. She's very changeable. Yeah. She yes. Is. But to me, this idea that like you have to change who you are to make a man happy makes me really uncomfortable. But she's sort of, I don't know. But I think, like I said, I think with Bernadette, she is the type who will not personalities, but her outer appearance to her is something that she she's like a chameleon. Yeah. She can just like change at will. I and this guy that. was clearly very dapper, right? He shows I, up. He's got like the tuck scarf. Like he's very dapper guy. So if she, when she shows up with him, she wants to reflect that part of him kind of. You don't get the impression that she changed and then she got her man. You got the impression that they like fell in love and then she may have just changed her outward appearance because she was feeling more glamorous. I, I, I don't know. I do agree. I do agree. Yes, I agree. It just, I don't, it's, it's a little like, oh, wow, she looks completely different because she's with that guy. And then Prudy and Dean, Prudy is pregnant. They're obviously saving That was very parents. cute. They seemed very happy and cute. They did. Um, and Dean's like, uh, oh, and Dean's like, I bet he hasn't read any Austin at all. And then the guy oh, the whole like, end was so cheesy. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to have to teach it. We're going to have to make him. Oh, read. well, we'll fix that. <laughs> we'll fix that, right, exactly. We'll be taking care of that. And then everybody raises their champagne flutes and I'm sure the guy is like thinking like I caramba like oh my god racist come on it's just Spanish. is Allegra is she there with someone I can't remember from do they because we yeah, know she's in the, with Dr. Yep or, so they changed that for her because in the book she goes back to Corinne, back to Corinne. which is some bullshit yeah so I'm glad they have because I really like Dr. Yep Dr. Yep was cool okay yeah, yeah, Dr. I think she's with Dr. Yab. I know she I couldn't Dr. remember Yab if she was at the dinner or not. I think she might have been there alone and I couldn't remember. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't, don't hold me. Either. Don't hold me to anything with that. I can't remember. Yeah. But anyway, I think that's the end of the, our movie discussion. If you want to say anything else, otherwise we can move into the Wheat Chief. 
Um, I just, I liked it. I, I would actually be interested to have Bayard watch it. I think that he would, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see his response. Since you talked about Kevin's response to it. Um, I would definitely file this one under the like chick flick category, which I hate to use, but I mean, come on, like the marketing of this was not going to be like, take your man to see this movie. (laughs) Although I think that anyone who watches it would enjoy it and find value in it. I thought it was cute. I I do prefer the book, but this, this was a very cute, very interesting movie. Yeah. I, I cute is the word I would use. Like if someone said, what'd you think? I'd say it was cute. It was cute. Yeah. I, I would say I'm, um, I never went back to this as like a fun, you know, girls night or just personal. I need a movie night kind of watch, but now that no, it's a little, it's a little heavy for that actually. I think Well, now that I've rewatched it to this point and I feel like a kinship with it, I actually might do that hmm. now. So I may have actually grown into it a little bit. Hmm. I think for me, it's a little too, like the emotions involved are very, there's a lot of crying. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like her yeah. mother died, Prudy's mother dies and Sylvia's marriage falls apart. <laughs> and there's just, there's a lot of like heavy stuff going on in this movie. There is. I wouldn't say it's a comedy. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of funny parts though. I, I thought that the uplifting parts were more rewarding and the, the discussion parts were very rewarding for me. Mm-hmm. So I, on the whole, I think it balances out. For whatever reason, the crying didn't upset me as much as movies. A lot of movies really upset me. I have to be very careful with what I watch nowadays. Oh, this is, oh my God, yes. So there is, oh, can I, let me tell a story. Uh, I remember maybe four years ago, we were talking about Game of Thrones and Kristen says, Maggie, and I've read the books, and Kristen says, Maggie, Rob Stark is just my favorite character. If anything happens to him, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember telling Kristen before a certain episode happened, I emailed her and I was like, okay, girl, no spoilers, but you may want to prepare yourself before you watch the episode tonight. <laughs> if you need to talk, feel free to call me. I'll be awake. <laughs> I think after a, you told me once, after a certain character died on Downton Abbey, you turned to your mom and you guys both said, Kristen's not going to be able to handle this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I don't want to, again, no spoilers, even though it's been out for a while, no spoilers. Like one of the main characters on Downton Abbey, my mom looked at me and said, oh my God, Kristen. <laughs> you have to warn her. Because you both know how you get into things. And you're like, not that you're delicate, but just that you feel things so strongly. So when I know something like sad is going to happen, I feel like this responsibility. Yeah. Or you'll torture yourself. I've started taking that responsibility on myself, honestly. I, I've, I'm really, and it's sad that I have to do this because I know I'm missing out on art. That no, no, but not if it's going to but... cause you actual emotional anguish. Yeah. But, you know, this like, is just like me with the Olympics. I've discovered that I cannot stay up late watching like gymnastics on Olympics because then I won't sleep the rest of the night. Oh, because I'll be so keyed up and so <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm like, <laughs> freaking out. <laughs> I have to just go to bed and watch it in the morning. <laughs> That's so funny. The things that get us riled up, but it's so funny. Um, I have to tell you too, this is a, a digression, but you know, we were talking about Greg and all of the trash in his car. That was really filthy. When I got married, right, Kevin drove this Volvo 240. It was, he had been driving it for years. It was a really old car and he didn't keep it that clean. And so when we left, you know, how the married couple drives away or whatever, I came out, he brought the car around, he got out, he opened the door, passenger door for me. (laughs) I looked on the floor 
And on the passenger side, <laughs> it was like, it was like fast food wrappers. And you're in your wedding dress? Yeah, I was in my, like, I changed out of my wedding dress into like some other pretty dress. Oh, you're like, like traveling honeymoon dress, yes, right? Yes, And I got into this chariot fast full of on the garbage. <laughs> If I was you, I'd be like, this better not be a metaphor for our pick, pick me up in your trash car. You really didn't even bother to get his car no. fucking clean. No, no. Oh, it's like the optics of this where you're like, I just, it's like from yeah. the 1950s. You're in like your beautiful travel suit. Like women used to wear travel suits. Yeah. And you have like your little vintage suitcase <laughs> standing on the side of the road for your husband. And he pulls up and opens the door and you look down and it's just full of trash. Yeah. I think it's even in one of the <laughs> wedding pictures. <laughs> you can see the trash. <laughs> classy. We're classy folk. Oh, Kevin. Okay. All right. Yes. But that's it. I, uh, parting thoughts. Uh, final thoughts. Do you think that watching this movie would encourage people to read Jane Austen? You know what? I would say yes. Honestly. I think so too. If you were forced to watch this, but you didn't know anything about Jane Austen, I think you would come out very curious. I'm sure there's a lot of high school girls who watch this movie and then were like, you know what? I'm going to read the Jane Austen. Yeah. Maybe they had only seen Pride and Prejudice or something. Yeah. Like, let's see what all the fuss is about. Yeah. Or a couple other movies, yeah. Do you oh, think that the movie is appropriately, I guess, like, reverential to Jane Austen? It's, it's very clear. No one ever shits on Jane Austen, right? Right. They always hold her up with respect and discuss her work seriously, and I appreciate that. Yeah. I don't think that uh, I would be watching this movie if it had a whole lot of critique of Jane. I mean, the negative critique of Jane Austen in it. Yeah. And, uh, now, D now uh, Greg does when he and Jocelyn are fighting. He does say w when she has never read, you know, the Ursula Le Guin. He's like, I read those girly books that you oh, suggested, yeah. and then she and gets she like her hackles go up, and and then he finishes and says, and you call them that, and then she said, and he says, yes only because I had never read them. Yeah. Or like, yeah. And then he says something like, I read them and I learned that was wrong. Yep. yep. So even, and so, and I, my, I was the same way watching it. As soon as he said that, I was like, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> and then his next line, he kind of he resolves like, yeah, that see? for me. You know, there's a lot out <laughs> there that you know you might not understand and you shouldn't judge. You shouldn't be so proud and prejudiced. <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> Um, okay, so that I, I am now finished with my discussion. I'm ready to go to the Wheat Chief. Wheat Chief. Time to go to the Wheat Chief. So it has been a long time since we have done a podcast um, uh, because of the guys having done the last Yeah, one. we passed yeah. it off to the boys. Did you get any mail from people about um, the last episode? No mail about that, but I do have a lot of mail. Um, first, congratulations to Alicia, who won, the yeah, who won the copy of A Contrary Wind. And thank you to Lona again for lending us the coffee. And I also heard from Colleen from near Toronto, because where else? Everyone's uh, from Toronto. Everyone who likes this is from Toronto. Look, we are huge. We are huge in Toronto. <laughs> well, someone, you know, said, you know, you just just a huge population center in Canada, like most people live there. So and and Colleen did say outside of Toronto. So um, but she had she had written written in to say, uh, just to give us a vote for the Austin Project books and eligible. 
and um, Bridget Jones Diary. So we got, you know, definitely that got those on our list. And um, then we heard from Hannah as well. So thanks for writing, Hannah. Hannah just wrote to check in, say hi, say glad Maggie's not saying B-A-E because that's late. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, I get so many. It's very cute. I get so many messages from people where I guess I don't mention it enough, like in every time I say his name, but I do refer to Bayard as Bay. And so almost after every episode, we get a message or an email from someone who has learned that his name is not that his name is Bayard and that it's not B-A-E. And it's just like every episode, a new fan <laughs> discovers <laughs> excuse me, that Maggie is not just being weird and trying to like be up on the pop culture. <laughs> that is his name. That is his actual name. <laughs> we when we're in public, it's awkward because I feel like if I go like, Bay, come look at this. People look at me like, who do you oh. think you are? <laughs> yeah. um, I'm much more likely to call him the old ball and chain. <laughs> or my bitch. Or no, I'm just kidding. That's rude. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Your bitch. <laughs> my bitch. <laughs> hey, it's funny because it's true. Um, He's making a really sad face at me right now. <laughs> he just looked over to me and gave me his like grumpy face. So Hannah, thanks for writing. And then we also heard from Sean, our listener Sean, who is from rural Australia. And Cute. He checked out the 1995 Persuasion because of our review. So we are doing some, you know, good in the world, promulgating that excellent adaptation. He also wrote to say that um, the guy who plays John Willoughby in the Sense and Sensibility, you know, the Emma Thompson version, is also in Cranford, which That's I right. didn't realize. So That's right. um, if you haven't seen Cranford, it's a very cute sort of like English villagey type serial. And Isn't that the guy that Emma was dating? Uh, the one who plays Willoughby in Sense and Sensibility with Emma Thompson like didn't she go on to date him for quite a long time that's what you had said but I yeah, I, that's I, true that happened and I like that too because she's older again like an older woman yeah yeah dude. good for her you go also Emma. Emma Thompson whatever she's awesome I'd date her yeah I mean she like ditched Kenneth Branagh so she definitely well married. let's be honest Kenneth Branagh pretty much is um what's the character he plays in Harry Potter Oh, Gilderoy Lockhart? He is Gilderoy Lockhart. Come on. <laughs> He's a better actor than Gilderoy Lockhart. Yeah, but he is Gilderoy Lockhart, who just happens to also be a good actor. Good actor. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a lot of acting that went on in the second Harry Potter movie on his part. I think he just showed up and said the lines like, as. <laughs> that's probably really unfair. I'm sure he's very nice. Well, I don't know. I mean, no one, I can never say a word against him because of his um, Much Ado About Nothing adaptation, which is one we of my- We should watch that together oh, I love that movie so I haven't seen it in much. so long. Um, but, uh, okay. So, and Sean also wrote in with another interesting question that I think we should address more fully on a different podcast. But he did ask, what is our, in our opinion, the worst adaptation? Um, and I think I would like to explore that question in depth, but I can give an immediate answer. It is the Patricia Massimo Mansfield Park. Oh, I have an immediate answer. Mine is the version of Pride and Prejudice they did in like the 1940s, the 1940s oh, with Sir yeah. Lawrence Olivier. Yeah. And but they like weirdly set it in Victorian times. Yeah. We watched it in high school, and I remember thinking like, "What the hell is going on?" That's one. That's one that Sean said. 
that was his yeah uh, sean i feel yeah we are on the same wavelength he's he's like some he says some leeway can be given for the likely absence of research on region sierra clothing but the slur against librarians was unforgivable <laughs> because they make Mr. Collins a librarian instead of a yeah, instead of a. So. I think what really happened is this was okay. I can tell you exactly what happened. They made that movie around the same time they were making things like Gone with the Wind, and they yeah. just had a shit ton of those costumes. <laughs> so this is this is probably a hundred percent true. I mean, I don't know for sure, but if you research it, the studio was probably like, "Look, we don't have a lot of Regency stuff." But what we do have is a lot of hoop skirts. Um, I also wanted to congratulate you on having done your panel at AwesomeCon. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was really fun. Uh, Inclusive Spaces in Gaming, is that what it was called? Yeah, so this is our third year presenting at AwesomeCon. It's a big DC pop culture, oh, sci-fi convention. Hey, except I didn't meet any, I didn't have a meet cute in an elevator. Um, <laughs> But this is the third year at DC that I presented along with some good friends of mine about um, increasing diversity in game spaces, both online and in person. And we're actually giving another panel at another convention over the 4th of July weekend in Crystal City in Arlington, which is called Blurred Con, which stands for Black Nerds, sort of like a celebration of uh, diversity within fandoms. So that'll be fun. That's awesome. You do so many Hopefully, awesome we won't things, blow it. Maggie. Yeah. You are a renaissance woman, for sure. People just like to hear me blabber, apparently. I, um, you know, we could also do... Uh, oh, I, I wanted to ask you also, okay, so if you had a, a, a fan of the podcast, so if we had a, a, got a fan and it was a celebrity, what celebrity would you like to have listening to our podcast? So this is a hard question. You asked me this earlier, so I'd have time to think about it. And I wanted to come up with someone who not only would be a fan and that and is famous and has money and stuff and could give us money, um, but who could also like help spread the gospel of Jane Austen. (laughs) And I was having trouble thinking of someone. And then Bay looked at me and said, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) yes. Write a fucking musical about one of the shows, everyone, it'll be just like when Pride and Prejudice came out in 1995 and everyone will be reading Austin. (laughs) Um, I thought that was kind of the perfect answer. That is a really funny answer. I have to admit um, that mine is a little bit weirder. So I follow Alexandra Petri on Twitter. Do you know who that is? I do not. She writes humor and satire for the Washington Post. Oh, okay, cool. What I found out by following her on Twitter is that she's a Jane Austen fan. Yes. And she, um, I tweet at her not all the time because I love her and I retweet her stuff. And she has liked four <gasps> different, four different tweets of mine over the course of a couple of months. And so, A, this is proof that I'm funny. And B, <laughs> this is proof that Alex, Alex and I should be friends. And C, it's proof that she would like the podcast. So, Did if I had one celebrity links to the podcast, Oh no, then no, I, I don't, okay. I don't tweet it. I don't, on that Twitter account, it's a, I tweet about politics, so I keep it anonymous. So I don't mm-hmm. tweet about anything about who I am or my writing That's or my podcast. That's a good idea because the internet is crazy. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's not too bad, but every once in a while I, you know, put a swear in there or something. So, um, you know, I'd be more worried about people like showing up at my house with death threats yeah. or something. 
yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, it's not too bad. But mainly, I just follow like writers that I love and people that I, you know, um, uh, a lot of reporters that I really enjoy following and like tweet at them and then they never respond. So Alexandra Petria is the one person who does actually like my <laughs> like my efforts. So it makes me feel like someone's listening. Um, so that's good. That's and really then- exciting. Yeah, so it, it would be so cool if she she listens. Another one that would be good would be Mallory Ortberg of The Toast and now of Slate um, because she wrote this book, um, Texts from Jane Eyre, which mm-hmm. texts back and forth between literary characters, right. which is a really funny book, but I, I think she would be uh, an Austin fan too. And I then, was trying to think of someone who would be like a big name in the Austin community who would then, who, if they liked us, they could tell people about us. And then more people who are like deep into the Austin fandom could discover us, but I couldn't actually think of anyone. (laughs) I'm more, this is more for my like warm fuzzies than it is for people telling other people about us. Because as you know, I'm afraid to get popular because I don't want hate mail. Oh, but Kristen, Um, you always got to have the, you know me, I've always got the hunter's instinct. (laughs) I'm always trying to spread the word. word. (laughs) I'm I'm doing this podcast for the fame. Let's make yeah. that clear. Yeah. Because yeah. this is clearly the way to do it. Yeah, clearly the way. <laughs> yeah. We have like 200 subscribers, so, you know, we're almost That's there. a lot. It, it is a lot. I mean, no, we, by rights, we should probably have no subscribers, so I think that's pretty amazing. So <laughs> Based on the quality, I would say we should only have like our mothers. <laughs> <laughs> quality, yeah. Um, and speaking of self-promotion, there are still codes for Goddess, the audiobook, if anyone else is interested uh, it was really good. The reader was really amazing. I don't know if there's any chance that she'll ever listen to this, but I thought she did a fantastic job. And it really reminded me again of how good your book is, Kristen. Oh, thank you. Well, and I didn't say a whole lot about it, you know, about actually what the book is about the, in the last podcast. So I'll just like really briefly say that I wrote this book after I read The Feminine Mystique, which is about what happened. Yeah, well, we read it in yeah. book club. I read it with mm-hmm. Maggie. So what happens in The Feminine Mystique mystique is that Betty Friedan describes that after World War II, when all the men came back and took the jobs back, all of these publications started pushing out this ideal of the woman, the ideal woman as a housewife. and is Happy in the home. Happy in the home. And so what I did in the book Goddess is that the, um, the main characters have been given that fiction and been told to worship Vesta and Vesta is fake. So they've been told basically by the elder religious statesmen of the time, they've been given like this fake ideal of domestic. And so once they figure out in the first scene, they're like, the flame goes out and they're like, oh my God, is Vesta real? That's when they sort of discover that it's a fiction, just like what happened with the women's movement. They're like, no, this women's in the, in the, places in the home that's a fiction and so this is it's sort of a, a feminine work or it's supposed to have a it's a, it's got a positive message for young girls or whatever and um we did just get a review in uh the audiobook worm blog which is a, a, a you know obviously a blog where they review audiobooks that was a 4.25 star review and the author was extremely complimentary said that she wanted to read a sequel thought it was well plotted and great characters and so anyway if you want to read the review it is on the audiobook worm website and uh yeah you should, you should check it out still got codes just shoot us an email our email yeah. is, is first impressions podcast at gmail.com so you'll really like i think you'll really like it i thought it was great and the reader was really great sometimes you listen to audiobooks and you like the story but you just can't keep listening to it because you find the reader really annoying. <laughs> and this, yeah. this girl was very good 
yeah, yeah, she's really, really good. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping to get her. I mean, she's the one I'm really hoping to get her exposure and her some money for having done this upfront for free. And so yeah, check it out if you if you have a spare couple of moments. And it's goddess, and my author name again is Callista Hunter. We have to say it like that. Callista Hunter, C-A-L-L-I-S-T-A. It's two L's. So, anywho, I think. So do we have anything else to discuss, Kristen? Yeah, I think that's it. But I don't want to leave. Oh, another successful podcast on. But what are we going to talk about next time? Oh. We're being kind of delaying getting to Pride and Prejudice because it's the big one, right? Yeah. So I don't know, is it time yet or do you want to keep pushing it off? No, let's do it. Let's jump back into Pride and Prejudice. I I think we could, we were going to have a lot to say about it for sure. And then after we do it, let's do it. Let's start it next time. Cause let's be honest, we're going to talk for probably like four episodes about it. And maybe we can time it so that the last Pride and Prejudice book episode is the one that we can record in person when you're here for our friend's wedding. That's a good idea. All right. Okay. So gentle listeners. Get your Just pride pull out those about. battered old loved copies <laughs> of probably one of your favorite books of all time because next time it's Pride and Prejudice, baby. <laughs> That's right. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. It's time to go. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>